0: Hello and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Raya and the Last Dragon, seeing how they stand up today, How they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. Disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney Plus. So come on, watch along with us and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I know the secret of man's red fire, I'm not your Disney University lecturer. No, this week I'm a piglet being blown into the sky on a rather blustery day as we watch through 58 films and counting. Or is it 58? That is a question I'm hoping to tackle with our very own Honey Fiend with a wardrobe consisting entirely of red crop tops and literally nothing else. I am, of course, talking about Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogs of all time. Sorry, I've just watched Sam in real time react to to that description. I'm sorry, the <laughs> Winnie the Pooh
1: look is just so iconic. He literally wears a little red crop top And that's it. That's an outfit. Some of these, like, intros that you give me are very, like, dignified, and I almost think too over the top in terms of, like, bigging up my intellectual prowess, etc. This is not one of those times.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, if we're going to talk about your intellectual prowess, as we record, one day after... I want to call it ShrekFest, but it had an official title. You just hosted your Shrek Symposium for the 20th anniversary of your boss, your big green ogre boss, Shrek.
1: How did it go? It went really well. Uh, The official title was Two Decades of Shrek, call on an online academic symposium. ShrekFest is a very different thing. ShrekFest is a thing that they do in America, where everyone takes their shirts off and paints themselves green, eats onions and stuff, and none of that was happening. They wouldn't let me um, do that. On this uh, Zoom-based academic conference, but it was fun. Lots of Shrek chats, lots of nerdy chat, and uh, heavy Shrek-based analysis. Shrek, not unlike Winnie the Pooh. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, he he lives in the woods.
1: Yeah, both a couple of big boys. Yeah, I think that's maybe where (laughs) the similarities end. I was just I was trying to segue, but it didn't (laughs) maybe didn't come (laughs) off.
0: Well, before we get into the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh. Let's talk what I I teed up in the intro, which is that, okay, when we started this podcast, the most recent Disney film that had come out, what Disney Animation Studios-wise, was Frozen 2. And so I was writing the script for the first episode of Disneyversity. I looked on the spine of my Frozen 2 Blu-ray, and in terms of the numbering of which film this is, it said 57. And now we've had Raya and the Last Dragon, which, if you buy the Blu-ray in the UK, it says 58 And as we record this, Encanto is imminently coming out. I think as you listen to this, it's maybe out this week. I've seen Encanto. I think I could say I really, really liked it. It is great. But a lot of the marketing of Encanto and actually the opening title, Ident, has it as Walt Disney Animation Studios 60th animated feature. So there is a discrepancy in these numbers somewhere. Sam, help us break this down. What is going on with these numbers?
1: Okay, so in the US, there are 60. This is number 60. In the UK, I don't know. Because so you said at the start of this movie, it comes up with the 60th anniversary special Walt Disney Animation Studios logo. And obviously you watch the UK print of it. Yes. But we've just been going off Blu-ray spine numbers. And, and the way that it works in the UK is we include The Wild which the u.s don't in our list and we don't include the 2011 second winnie the pooh movie
0: simply titled winnie the
1: pooh exactly in america they do count winnie the pooh and instead of the wild they count dinosaur i don't know why i've tried to figure it out by the time we get to dinosaur in, in like a year's time i very much plan to have really got to the bottom of that but i don't know i know that dinosaur was a belated edition in the u.s because they didn't originally count it because it wasn't hand-drawn but then when they started making 3d films full-time they kind of went backwards and, and gave dinosaur number and i guess that's something we didn't get around to then when it got to tangled which was the 50th the uk suddenly had to make up the numbers because we were only on 49 so we added the wild instead of dinosaur and i'm just picturing someone doing that in a panic
0: (laughs) (laughs) like quick we need to come up with another film out of nowhere which as we say this i've suddenly got an idea of what they might do maybe because disney obviously acquired 20th century fox and one of the films they acquired in that and recently released was Ron's Gone Wrong, what if they account Ron's Gone Wrong as 59, which then will make Encanto 60?
1: That would be quite appropriate, actually, because that was produced by a British company, Locksmith. So that might work. The Wild, I've never been able to figure that out. It wasn't made by Disney Animation Studios, was made by a different company, and they were just like, oh, let's throw a label on that. So I think... By the time they bring out Encanto on Blu-ray, they might have to address this problem and maybe by the time we'll get to movies like Dinosaur in the Wild, we'll have a more concrete answer for that reason but for now we're just gonna have to decide what to do we have to decide whether in a year's time we're doing an episode on the wild
0: so yeah what are we gonna do are we gonna do dinosaur yes or no yes yeah okay we'll do dinosaur are we gonna do the wild does that count is that a thing
1: i don't recognize its authority but <laughs> i feel like it wouldn't do us any harm if it's still in the canon in the uk at that point to, to do like a bonus episode on it maybe and when i say it won't do us any harm It's a terrible movie, but apart from that, (laughs) harmless.
0: But you said bonus episode there, so we're thinking a small presence for the wild, but we will cover it in some capacity, maybe not in a full-on episode. Uh, And so that leaves the 2011 Winnie the Pooh, which counts in the US but technically doesn't count
1: here, but yeah. we, we've got to cover that, right? Yeah, we're doing that. We're doing that. We need all the poo we can get.
0: I mean, as we're about to discuss, and something I want to talk about briefly now is that, Sam, I mean this with the greatest respect, but I know you are a massive poo head. I know <laughs> you're all about Winnie the Pooh. That you texted me that when you rewatched this film for the podcast, you shed a few tears. And that was genuine.
1: It was genuine, yeah. I have a thing with Winnie the Pooh. Winnie the Pooh sets me off. And my history with it has been interesting. I wasn't like really into Wing the Pooh when I was a kid. I had the actual, like the original Milne book. My mum used to read it to me in bed sometimes. I had various toys. I had a Tigger plush that was like one of my favorite toys for a long time. I used to love Tigger. And then I kind of forgot about it a little bit. And then I reread the whole book when I was in like college, like 17, 18. And as an adult, or a quote unquote adult, as a teenager, I guess, the last. Chapter of of the Pooh, where they say goodbye, hits so so hard and it just broke me then. And it has broken me every single time I've gone back to it. Like, if I was an actor and I needed to cry sometimes on cue, I would just keep that on my phone in my pocket and I'd just take out the last chapter of of the Pooh, quickly skim the last few paragraphs, and I'd be gone. So, I cried when I watched it the other day, and then For research purposes, I revisited parts of Christopher Robin, the live-action movie, which we'll talk about. I cried at that. And then, this is all in one night, I also watched bits of Winnie the Pooh's Most Grand Adventure, one of the director video movies, and I cried at that as well. And I cried watching a documentary about this movie where some of the nine old men who were still alive were talking about Winnie the Pooh, like a 90-odd-year-old Ollie Johnston saying things like, well, the thing I love about Winnie the Pooh is he's just such a good friend and all of that stuff. that <laughs> like, Oh crime. my
0: God, he's such a good friend to us
1: all. I, I went to an exhibition of Winnie the Pooh stuff at the VNA museum and i cried at that
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is just your like emotional kryptonite right it here. absolutely
1: is it just it ends me every single time
0: oh man well i hope you've got a lot of fluids nearby so you can replenish <laughs> at various points if the tears start coming um hopefully you haven't dried out this week from all of the winnie the pooh revisiting but okay that is enough from us we're all sat down the register's complete and it's time for class to begin This time, after stealing from the rich and giving to the poor in Robin Hood, we're off to the Hundred Acre Wood for a series of storybook tales in 1977's The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh. Sam, I don't want to set you off straight away, but to the extent that you feel able to, can you give us a little summary of of
1: what's happening in this film? Okay, so Winnie the Pooh, is a little toy bear who plays with his friend, human boy Christopher Robin in the Hundred Acre Wood. And over the course of this movie they get into a series of adventures, as the title tells us many adventures, but it's it's basically just three. And Adventure number one, Wingy the Pooh tries to find some honey and gets stuck in Rabbit's house. And Adventure number two, Pooh and Piglet have to deal with some inclement weather. Um, Pooh meets Tigger and is accosted by some heffalumps and woozles. And in adventure number three, everyone decides that Tigger's bouncing is very annoying, so they decide to bully him. And then at the end... <laughs> Sorry, can I just say, it <laughs>
0: feels like you have a stance on this third story, which we will get to when the time comes.
1: <laughs> little bit, little bit. And then at the end, Christopher Robin has to say goodbye to Winnie the Pooh as he journeys into adulthood. Deep breaths, leaves his friends in the wood behind. You did it, man. Inch, You've got end, this. That's the end, end of the story. It's the end.
0: But Sam, it doesn't have to be the end. Those friends are always there whenever you want to go back and revisit them on Disney+.
1: And in the director video movies, and then <laughs> the TV Saturday morning cartoon. and In the wider Pooniverse. That sounded really bad. <laughs> <laughs> There's going to be a lot of that today, I think.
0: Okay, so that's kind of where this film comes into it. We grew up in a time, Sam, where... Winnie the Pooh was kind of always a Disney property. I probably saw bits of Saturday morning cartoons and that kind of thing more than I really read the book, the A.M. Ilm stories that these were based on. I actually realized watching this, I've never seen this film. I had never seen this film before, but I did grow up with Disney's Winnie the Pooh as a presence in my life. So was this the start of Winnie the Pooh being considered a Disney property? Is this where the sort of Disney and, and Winnie the Pooh crossover began with this film?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, there had been adaptations of Pooh prior and there would be other adaptations of Pooh since. So AA Milne didn't sell the screen rights to Winnie the Pooh during his lifetime, even though Walt Disney was trying to acquire them. It was one of those properties like The Wind in the Willows and Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan that Walt immediately started to try and acquire after Snow White came out to be their next film. But when Milne died in 1956, his wife immediately started trying to sell the screen rights. I'm not trying to throw shades, but that's just <laughs> what happened. You're coming out
0: swinging <laughs> in this episode. You're like, leave Tigger alone and stop trying to sell Winnie the Pooh.
1: So she would sell them in 1956 to NBC for a Shirley Temple TV special, which used puppets, for example. And in 1961, she sold them to Walt Disney. Production was delayed. By the fact that they couldn't get the merchandising rights to Winnie the Pooh that was a separate thing that they had to work out and Walt Disney quite astutely given the way that history played out with this character thought that those things had to be in place in order to make this property as profitable as it could be so they didn't get to producing their Winnie the Pooh cartoons until 1966 and yes I say cartoons plural and yes I say 1966 and not 1977 when this movie came out because The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh is actually a package film. It's three (gasps) separate shorts that were produced in three separate years and stitched together.
0: Oh my god, we're sneakily back in the package era. What are we doing here, Sam? Get us out. (laughs) Did you you
1: notice this when you were watching the movie? Is this something you knew going in?
0: Genuinely not. I know you'd said to me in advance that it was three stories, because I said, how many adventures are we talking here in this many adventures of Winnie the Pooh? So I knew it was three tales, but actually I thought they kind of moved fairly fluidly between those stories. I wouldn't have thought of it as something that was kind of put together piecemeal in that way.
1: Yeah, I think it works because it's episodic, the book is episodic, and the way that it stitches them together is quite efficient and quite charming as well with these interactions that they have with the narrator in between each story. But yeah, these were 3 separate shorts, Wingy the Pooh and the Honey Tree, which was released in 1966 along with the live-action movie The Ugly Dashand, Sam Summer's favourite. Wingy the Pooh and the Blustery Day, which was released in 1968 with The Horse in the Grey Flannel Suit, a live-action film about a horse that I have not seen. And Wingy the Pooh and Tigger 2, which was released in 1974 with The Island at the Top of the World. And all of these live action films have been pretty much forgotten. You can still catch The Ugly and on Disney Plus, and I heartily recommend that you do. But Wingy the Pooh has survived. Wingy the Pooh is what people remember from these releases. And eventually, when there was a little bit of a gap in the animation studio schedule, Wolfgang Reitherman, I guess, put on his money making hat once again and said, let's just stitch these together, we'll make it a poo movie.
0: Wow, I had no idea that that was the case. So not only is this a package movie, but it was a package movie of shorts that had already made their way into the world. Because I think when we had the package era, they were made as package films for the most part, or things that were around in the studio, but that maybe hadn't been released in that way, had they?
1: Yeah, things like Saludos Amigos and the Three Caballeros were always intended to be a feature package film bits and pieces of make my music and melody time were intended for release elsewhere but hadn't been released by the time we'll get to those movies so this is the first time that disney has released a feature film almost entirely comprised of material that people had already seen the major exception being the end and sequence where they do say goodbye which was made to put a button on this movie
0: right and so in those cartoons then and as they bring it into a feature with the many adventures of winnie the pooh how involved was the milne estate with this adaptation because like i said for me this disney winnie the pooh was my winnie the pooh growing up rather than really the aa milne winnie the pooh so it it really kind of changed people's conceptions of that character or that became the version that was even more widely out there in the popular culture did they try and take a real kind of tight hold of that i mean it just makes me think of saving mr banks with mary poppins and with emma thompson as pl travers hating everything that tom hanks as walt disney is doing with mary poppins what was the milne's take on disney's winnie the pooh
1: it was pretty hands-off i think i can't find much material suggesting that they were really consulted on it, and after the fact, his wife gave her blessing to the movie, said that she enjoyed it. She's making quite a bit of money off it, so maybe she would say that. But yeah, th- there wasn't like a big battle in the way that there had been with something like Mary Poppins. There was a concern and conversations among the animators as to how many liberties they could take when they adapted it, and a few liberties were taken. There was this question that was so with the likes of Alison Wonderland and Peter Pan of whether they can retain the distinctly British sensibility of the original stories. And uh, Ralph Wright, one of the story artists, said that they had to figure out how to keep the original Milne style and make it understandable to an American audience while also not upsetting the British. So Ben, as the British, did you think this was a problem? Was this a movie that you thought was noticeably Americanized?
0: Kind of not to me, but I have to say, so I'm at my mum and dad's house at the moment, and I watch this with my mum and dad. My dad loves these stories. He brought down the book that he bought for my mum when they first started going out, and as we were watching the film, he realised he hadn't seen it either. And he was there going, oh, actually, this is closer to the book than I thought it was going to be. This is kind of actually a slightly less Americanized version of Winnie the Pooh. And then the gopher turned up <laughs> my dad was like, this isn't in the book. This will not stand. <laughs> so um, I personally wasn't that bothered. I think because, again, my view of Winnie the Pooh has always been through this slightly Americanized lens. But I can imagine there was maybe some friction at the time of how people felt about this. Yeah, very, very British character. And obviously, who, the, the kid who voices Christopher Robin still has a British accent. But then there are other American accents going on here as well in kind of classic Disney-style I can imagine that will have rubbed some people up the wrong way.
1: Yeah, the gopher was the main like symptom of the Americanization of this, or the most obvious one. The idea being like, we need something, we need like a distinctly American character to appear in this movie so the Americans don't feel alienated, I guess. So we'll put in a gopher? And and the gopher says he's he has fun with that. He keeps saying, I'm not in the book. Because he, he means, like, I guess it means he's not in the phone book because he's a professional excavator or something. So it's like, right. oh, if you if you want me, just so you know, I'm not in the book. But it's just <laughs> a little okay. reference.
0: I finally understood that joke because I thought he was literally just talking to the audience, being like, hey, I'm a character who's not in the book. And I was like, who is this to? Because this is all taking place within the book. That's something I really want to get into when the time comes. This is taking place within the book. So if he's saying, I'm not in the book... And that's just for the audience, like, who is that? What is that about? But yes, okay, so he's talking about being a tradesman who cannot be found, who cannot be looked up in the yellow pages.
1: Yeah, and I mean, Ben, you and I probably haven't used a yellow pages in our adult lives, so <laughs> that's probably why that didn't immediately land. Um, but yeah, Rytherman said that they needed this character to bring a folksy, all-American, grassroots image to the story, and people didn't love it. Gophers don't even live in Britain. No. The Hundred Acre Wood is meant to be in Britain. We don't have gophers in this country, right? Look, I understand that they're all toys, but
0: we also have a tiger and two kangaroos and lots of other animals that aren't. But then the gopher character isn't presented as a toy. He's presented as an animal in the wood rather than
1: yeah, a toy. Yeah. He's one of the real animals. So rabbit, owl, and gopher are real animals. Everyone else is a toy. So kangaroo, doesn't matter. Tiger, not a problem. Gopher... Where's he coming from? What's all this about? Is he is he travelled?
0: He's travelled under the ground. So that's that's how he gets about.
1: I mean, he's he's fine. I wasn't like annoyed by him or anything. He he doesn't like ruin the movie, but he's he's there, isn't he? And he does stick yeah. out like a sore thumb. He's not core crew, is he? Like he doesn't he doesn't pop up as much in the spin-offs. He seems to have been like written out a little bit. I was thinking, are we going to do a Disney-versity legend in this episode, and who might it be? I don't think we can because all of the characters are so iconic. The only one who will be eligible is Gopher, and he's not getting in.
0: No, he's not getting in. I have to say, nobody stood out while I was watching this where I was like, ooh, we've got some Disney-versity legends material here. So after last week's Disney-versity legends bonanza, I still cannot decide which of those four characters should make it in from Robin Hood we finally have a film with no Disney-versity legends to kind of even us out. Okay, so before we get talking about the film itself, I just want to ask about a name that popped up in the credits. We are very much in the Wolfgang Reithemann era. He is the director of The Jungle Book and of The Aristocats and Robin Hood, and he is a director here, but he's also directing alongside this guy John Lounsbury. Who is he? And how does he come into this?
1: So he is another one of the Nine Old Men, and we've, we've covered him before. I think we focused on him in the Sword and the Stone episode, because he animated the Wizards Duel. Right. And, you know, he worked on all those movies. He worked on Lady and the Tramp, Peter Pan, Alice in Wonderland. And he is credited as co-director on this movie because he directed Winged the Pooh and Tigger 2, the third short. So... That one was solely directed by John Lounsbury. The first two were directed originally by Wolfgang Reithemann. And then, I believe, the um, closing sequence where they say goodbye, the new sequence is directed by Reithman as well. So as a feature film, if we're going to credit one person, it would probably be Reithman. He's still very much kind of the head of the studio functionally, but yeah, I mean, you can't overlook the contributions that Lounsby made to this in directing that third shot, which is basically a third of the film. And he comes back to co-direct The Rescuers next week.
0: Right. Okay, that's interesting. So this is not a 100% Reithman joint But maybe three quarters of a Rytherman movie with a little bit of John Lounsbury in. Oh, a little bit of Nine Old Men in there for you too.
1: Yeah, it's kind of ironic that Rytherman did end up doing this because he really didn't want to. Multiple Nine Old Men were like big fans of Winnie the Pooh. Milt Carl loved it. Frank and Ollie loved it. But... Disney gave it to Rythaman because again Walt Disney's still alive at this point when this first thing's being made Which actually makes this really the last feature film to have any Walt Disney produced material in it And he gave the job to Rytherman despite Rytherman being the only one who didn't want to direct Winnie the Pooh and Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson have suggested that this is because Walt thought if you were too much of a fan of of the books you would make a movie that felt more like milne than disney while woolly's sensibilities were more in line with waltz so maybe that's what we'll see in this finished film
0: right then should we get into the film itself should we see how much disney's in there how much aa milne is in there talk about that go for some more
1: <laughs> if you want yeah
0: <laughs> to the hundred acre wood baby Now that you've mentioned that this film is technically a package movie, that actually makes sense because the sort of framing device for this whole thing is like a lot of the framing devices that we had in the package era, notably that it is a live-action opening. We go into a kid's bedroom, who is supposed to be Christopher Robin, but this is one of the Americanized bits. That looks very much like an American kid's bedroom rather than like a rural British kid's bedroom. But we go into christopher robin's bedroom we see the toys we see winnie the pooh himself we see a pile of Pooh books and this is our way into the story
1: yeah i think that's interesting this live action frame and device it's so i guess is it aligning us with christopher robin and putting us in the mind of this particular child going to read this particular book and is that why the framing device is the book because you know so many of these disney movies have been based on books many of them open with that book at the start some of them like the sword and the stone or actually especially robin hood take that slightly further and and give us a few minutes at the start of introduction using the book as a way in like that but yeah here the whole thing takes place within a book we're constantly reminded that it's a book we have Characters interacting with elements of the book, interacting with the type. There's a moment where Tigger gets out of a tree by asking the narrator to rotate the book 90 degrees so that he doesn't have to fall all the way to the ground. And yeah, it does beg that question, why? What was so significant about the Pooh stories being of literary origin that the book becomes so much a part of the text of the film as opposed to those other movies where... It's an introduction and then nothing else after that.
0: Yeah, it's intriguing because I think it gives that extra level of authorship, I guess, to A.A. Milne. That it's like, here is literally Disney presenting to you A.A. Milne's book. that is through a Disney lens, but these are A.A. Milne's stories. And obviously there are story credits for, say, J.M. Barry on Peter Pan but the way that that's presented all the way through the animation it's like no you're in disneyland here for for once of a better word whereas there's something about that extra level of the way that they introduce this framing device that it's like oh no disney is telling you the story but the story is winnie the pooh in a.a a. milne's books
1: yeah, I mean, it might be a preemptive reaction to criticism, the likes of which they received on, in particular, Alice in Wonderland, that they are making this, you know, as we've just said, making this to Disney, sort of erasing the authorship of the original writers. And quite importantly, and something that they might have been becoming aware of by the time they got around to making these poo cartoons, is that for many people around the world these stories become disney stories above and beyond their literary origins when a lot of people think peter pan they're going to be thinking the disney peter pan when a lot of people think pinocchio they're going to be thinking disney's pinocchio and maybe they were trying to preemptively get ahead of that criticism by constantly foregrounding the milness of it all if through nothing else through that book frame and device but if anything maybe somewhat ironically that's maybe more the case with Pooh than with anything else. Like you say, most people still encounter Pooh as a Disney creation. In, in this country in particular, I think you still get a lot of the Milne books with the original Shepard illustrations sold. And when I was a kid, I had some Disney Pooh toys and some like E.H. Shepard style Pooh toys as well. So maybe there's a bit more of a mix. But it does feel like Pooh has been subsumed by Disney in a way that maybe they were trying to avoid with this framing device maybe didn't entirely succeed in doing
0: I mean I think the other thing with the framing device is that I guess it brings you into the world of what Winnie the Pooh is in that A.A. Milne based these stories on his kid Christopher Robin and the toys that Christopher Robin had and played with and turned those toys into the stories and so maybe it's also just paying tribute to that extra level of kind of context around what Winnie the Pooh is what these stories are and where they come from it's not just a book that they can say, and oh, look, here is the bear, even though the bear in the film, the real life teddy bear in the film is not the real life Winnie the Pooh, I
1: would say. No, it doesn't It doesn't look anything like um, the original Winnie the Pooh toy that the real Christopher Robin had didn't have a red shirt on, for example, and he was quite a bit thinner as well.
0: So just the other thing with this kind of opening and with the credits, obviously it comes up in the credits that the Sherman Brothers are doing the music here, And the thing that immediately leapt out to me that I think maybe carried on through all the other cartoons and things was that Winnie the Pooh song. Winnie the Pooh. That is a classic ditty. I have to say, a lot of the other music here didn't really stick with me other than the Tigger song. We'll come back to Tigger. What's your feelings on the songs in this one?
1: Oh, I think there's quite a few big bangers. I think the Tigger song, great. Big bangers? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't think they're presented as big bangers. They're All like right.
0: cozy walk in the English countryside little ditties. It's not very, bangers. Very, very catchy,
1: memorable ditties, though. I mean, okay, a Lumps and Wurzles, that's kind of a banger. Uh... <laughs> carry <laughs> okay, on, Sam. You not. carry on. I like the rain, rain, rain came down, down, down. You know that one about the rain coming down? I vaguely
0: remember it, but oh my god, the look on your face as you're singing that is a joyous thing. I'm sad all the listeners can't hear that.
1: (laughs) Okay, so that's at least four very memorable songs.
0: Look, I think the songs are sweet, but the Winnie the Pooh song itself is... That's the earworm here, that's the one, that's the lead single, you know? That's the A-side.
1: Okay, alright, fair enough. I did used to have the soundtrack CD as a kid as well. Which I used to play on my PlayStation One before I owned a CD player.
0: Everyone else is playing Spyro the Dragon or Tony Hawk's Pro Skater Two, and you're playing your CD of the Winnie the Pooh <laughs> soundtrack. Taking the
1: Winnie the Pooh soundtrack in, watching the very janky 1990s visualizer on the PlayStation as I jam out to Heffalumps and Woozles.
0: What a world! What a life! Okay, so I want to talk about the Disney conception of Winnie the Pooh. Because as you mentioned, the illustrations in the A.A. Milne book is pretty different to the visual design we get here. He's still like a little teddy bear, but as we mentioned, he's got his little red crop top on. He's definitely quite a bit plumper. What can you tell me about Disney changing and creating the visual design of Winnie the Pooh and we need to talk about the voice as well
1: Yeah, so he wears the red shirt And I think that's partly to give the character some definition if you've got an animated character where the body is all one solid color It can be quite difficult to tell both for the audience and the animators where the arms end and the body begins For example, Uh, same reason Mario wears dungarees in order to give that character with very limited features and design some definition. But they didn't invent the shirt. Toys had been sold wearing the red shirt before Disney bought it in the 40s and 50s. You can find toys of the bear wearing the red shirt. Um but yeah, the voice has become a very iconic aspect of this character and that voice in this film is provided by our man Sterling Holloway, who has been in so many Disney movies. Oh I've just remembered something that I did and I forgot. So, Sterling Holloway has been so many Disney movies, I have always pointed him out when he cropped up. He's the Cheshire Cat, he is Car, he is Flower in Bambi, he narrated several segments in the Package films, he's the Stork in Dumbo, he's all over the place. And... I've been saying he's one of the most prolific voice actors in Disney history, and I never actually did a scientific survey of that, but now I have. And I can tell you that he is joint third. Okay, so, I mean, I don't know who
0: else would be doing that many, but I'm going to throw out there Alan Tudyk has to be fairly high up that list. Every single... Disney film of the last however many years has Alan Tudyk, who you might know from Firefly and Serenity, and he's K2SO in Star Wars Rogue One. There'll be an animal creature who doesn't speak, but all the noises that they make will be provided by Alan Tudyk. I I can say, I can't remember who, but his name does pop up in the Encanto credits as well, so he's he's in there. He's very prolific.
1: Well, in that case, if he is an Encanto, that's going to put him one above Sterling Holloway because Sterling Holloway and Alan Tudyk are currently tied third with eight each, so Ah. now Alan Tudyk will move into joint second after Encanto, unless This next man is an Encanto as well, uh, Frank Welker, who is a very prolific voice actor who does. You say Alan Tudyk does animal noises, Frank Welker does every animal noise in anything. Like almost any animation produced in America in the last like 40 years will have Frank Welker in there doing voices. So he's been in nine Disney movies doing his little barks and and horse noises and little goose honks and stuff. He can do anything. But number one with Eleven is the current voice of Winnie the Pooh, Jim Cummings. So he's been in 11 movies, uh, all the way from Aladdin through to Wreck-It Ralph. Some of them are small cameos, but um, he plays the Captain of the guards in Aladdin, he plays Ed the Hyena in The Lion King, and he plays Ray the Firefly in The Princess and the Frog. So there we go. Bit of trivia, Stolen Holloway, joint third. Possibly still my favourite, though, of, of all these big league Disney voice actors, and I think in The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, his last role for Disney, we have his most memorable performance.
0: So where does Jim Cummings take over from Sterling Holloway as the voice of Winnie
1: the Pooh? At some point in the 1990s, I think, in uh, one of the TV shows that they made. There were multiple TV shows that spin off from this. The New Adventures of Winnie the Pooh, I think, is when Cummings takes over. And he also takes over in the course of that show from Paul Winchell, who was the original voice of Tigger.
0: So, as well as just making you want to weep every time you lay eyes on him, Sam, what are your feelings on Winnie the Pooh as a character? I found him quite funny in that he... He's a sweet kind of lovable character, but he's also just like greedy little dude who rocks up at people's houses and steals all their honey and and does whatever he wants. He has that moment in the first story. I think it's a quote in a song where he says, I'm short, fat and proud of that. (laughs) Like,
1: oh, my man, that's great. (laughs) I've written that down as well. Yeah, he's just, he's happy in his own skin, you know? He doesn't really worry about anything and he is greedy. He's a bit wanton. He doesn't really think beyond... Foods and that's usually honey, but he doesn't he's not like Craven he's not like betraying his friends for honey. It's not like he'll do anything for honey He just meanders through the forest through the hundred acre wood and oh might be some honey over there Go and help myself to a small smackerel and I love I love all of his little things that he says his vocabulary Oh, a little small smackerel and there's, There's a bit where piglet flies through the air holding a pot of honey and it lands on Pooh's nose and he just goes thank you, piglet, (laughs) starts eating the honey. He just loves a bit of it, man, and who can blame him? Very relatable characters. We all have poo days, right? We're not... (laughs) We
0: all have those days when we've blocked somebody's entire front door because we've eaten so much honey that we simply cannot leave.
1: (laughs) We all have those days where we just feel like poo, where we just want to relax and eat some honey and not really think about work and half-arse our exercises and hang out with our friends and do nothing. I
0: mean, even when he's under attack, in the first story when he climbs up the tree to get the honey and he sticks his paw in, shoves it in his mouth, but there's loads of bees there as well, he doesn't freak out over the bees, he's just like, hmm something's wrong here, my head's full of bees, okay, I'm just going (laughs) to ping them all out. He deals with that situation, he's kind of unflappable in a way, which is quite an endearing quality, I think.
1: Yeah, he's sort of like Robert Patrick in Terminator 2. He just kinda of walks <laughs> through the world shaking off all of these assaults. You can't stop him. And he's he's gonna get what he wants and what he wants is honey.
0: <laughs> and oh, he sees the world amazing.
1: through that like infrared computer vision that the Terminator has and is like Ping ping ping. oh, some honey over there. Gonna go and get some of that.
0: I need your red cropped up, your boots and your motorcycle. <laughs>
1: very good, very good, yeah.
0: The one other thing I want to say about Winnie the Pooh as a character is I actually just really like the way he's animated because as you mentioned, most of these characters are toys, and so he isn't just a bear he is a teddy bear, and the way he moves the way he walks, it's like the articulated joints on him, I think partly he kind of waddles because he's short, fat, and proud of that but also it's it's to do with where the, the kind of arms and legs would move with him being a teddy bear, I thought that was really sweet. For me, the most unexpected thing about this film was the whole presentation of it. As I said, I realized that I hadn't really seen it before. And in terms of the framing device of bringing you into the live action bedroom and then taking you through the story, That whole storybook presentation where you're seeing the characters in the illustrations come to life and and hop across pages and walk backwards and forwards within the book itself and reacting with the words and the words being blown away by the wind. All of that stuff was so magical and lovely and I didn't know that that was part of this film. I really, really loved that. I think that's my favourite thing about the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh.
1: Yeah, it's almost like Looney Tunesy the way that like Daffy Duck would interact with the animator and like attack the film strip itself and, and interact with the audience in the cinema. It's kind of Postmodern and meta textual in a similar way, but obviously in a far gentler way, the way that they interact with the letters and the narrator and things like that. And the backgrounds here have that kind of E.H. Shepard watercolour style, even if the characters very much don't. With the character designs, they've deviated quite significantly from those very gentle, soft illustrations, and especially characters like uh, Rabbit become a lot more cartoony looking even though he doesn't have a shirt shoved on him, as like Rue does and and Pooh himself. But those backgrounds still hold some of that storybook and some of that English quality, I would say.
0: It's funny you mentioned the Looney Tunes aspect of kind of breaking the fourth wall. You, like me, are a big Marvel fan and have probably recently watched What If, but it felt like there was a What If moment in the third story where Tigger notices the narrator and, and says, please, for goodness sake, narrate me down from here it was like all those moments where, like, Doctor Strange in What If suddenly goes, who's this guy in the sky who's narrating everything and watching everything that's happening?
1: I noticed that as well, but I likened it to um, the bit in Fleabag series 2 when Andrew Scott, the sexy priest, realises that she's turned to the audience and breaking the fourth wall. <laughs>
0: yeah, and it, this is, like, weirdly one of the most, like, meta Disney movies so far. They sort of bring in the narrator or bringing the audience also as an active participant in all of this. But yeah, I love the whole look of this. And like you said, obviously, the character designs are very classically Disney. I think owl and rabbit could have just been ported across from any other Disney movie featuring an owl or a rabbit. But the actual backgrounds, the the look of the film overall, does take a lot from those original illustrations. And I think coming off the back of a string of films that have had quite a stable Disney aesthetic from The Jungle Book to The Aristocats to, to Robin Hood to now have this bringing a bit of a different visual style felt kind of refreshing, I think, for me.
1: Yeah, it feels like maybe because this originated in the world of of short cartoons instead of as a feature film in and of itself, it's been allowed to experiment in that way that we've seen with the package films and in that way that, you know, in stuff that we haven't been able to cover, like a lot of the short films that Disney have been making alongside the features we've been talking about, they were able to experiment as well. It just didn't quite make it through into the film, so we'll get a little bit of that here by virtue of the fact that this has been cobbled together from shorts.
0: So let's talk about each story one by one then. We'll do a couple of minutes on each. What is the official name of this first story? For me, it was just the one where Pooh wants to eat all the honey, which I guess could be any Winnie the Pooh story.
1: The first one is called Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree, although that kind of only applies to the first half of the first story.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think all of these stories fairly nebulous it's, it's narratively fluid would be my nice way of putting it they're, they're kind of sweet little stories but they ne- none of them really has like a singular story driver it's just a little escapade before then the second story maybe brings in different characters and the third story focuses maybe less on Pooh himself but There are a couple of things from this first story that I wanted to pick up. There is that sweet moment where they pin Eeyore's tail back onto his bum. And it got me thinking, is that where the pin the tail on the donkey
1: game comes from? Like that classic kids party game? I don't know. I think it would make more sense for it to be the other way around. Like, intuitively, it feels like that's something Milne would have incorporated into that character because it was already a game to pin the tail on the donkey. But I actually, I can't say that for certain. It becomes quite a core aspect of the Eeyore character that he's always losing his tail, and it plays a big part, weirdly enough, in the other big Wing the Pooh movie that we're going to be looking at.
0: What are your feelings on Eeyore? Because I have to say, he is not my... Some of the members of the Hundred Acre Wood gang I really liked, and some of them... It's not my, just not my thing, and Eeyore, I'm
1: sad to say, is not my favourite of these characters. Oh, that's a shame. Well, just because he's a bit of a drag? He doesn't have very Ben energy, I will say.
0: I found some of the gags with him a bit like, Mwrap. um, I, he's got some funny lines, it's not much of a tale, but I'm sort of attached to it, very but uh, I don't know, he's just, yeah, I mean, I was, uh, you can probably guess all the characters that I did really like, in fact, see if you can.
1: Oh, okay, I, I'm guessing probably Piglet and Tigger, who are the classics. They are great. I love them. Especially Piglet.
0: Piglet is really cute.
1: Eeyore, I will say, is better in the book. That's one of the main things for me that I remember as being a lot better in the book. Eeyore's like a very funny kind of sardonic character in the book and he doesn't get as much to say in the film partly because they're going with that conceit of talking very slow and low so there's not enough room for like characterization in there i guess but in, in the book when he gets a bit more to say i have found them very funny i remember laughing out loud at a lot of Eeyore's lines
0: Do you know what did really make me laugh, though? When Winnie the Pooh is, he's noticed that there's all the bees up in the tree, and if he can get up there, he can get some honey. So he hatches this plot to attach himself to a balloon so that he can float himself up the tree. And Christopher Robin says, you don't get honey with a balloon. And Pooh, as serious as a heart attack, is like, I do. He says that with an intensity.
1: See, that's that Terminator vibe. The Terminator
0: energy comes out in that moment. I mean, Pooh's whole vibe, like, as well, when he goes to Rabbit's house and he's sitting there waiting for the honey to be served and he puts his little neckerchief on and he does that little, like, wiggle with his knife and fork while he's waiting for the food to come. And he does that in another one as well. Is just so, so iconic. The main thing that I want to talk about here is what happens when Pooh gets stuck in the door at Rabbit's house, or namely, how Rabbit reacts to that, because I love that Rabbit now has to live with Pooh, stuck halfway between the house, and just decides to, like, frame Winnie the Pooh's bum as, like, a feature of his house now, and all of the escapades around what they're gonna do with Winnie the Pooh's bum was amazing. He, like, he frames it, he sort of turns it into a moose with with antlers and a face,
1: Oh, it was an absolute blast. I love it. I love this version of Rabbit as well, because I think once you know that this is three shorts that were made several years apart from each other, you start to actually be able to see what developed and what changed in terms of what their ideas were about these characters between them. And in this first short, Rabbit is an excellent like comedic straight man. I just love this idea of the character who... He's so accommodating, and he's he's trying to, like, remain, like, fussy and keep his house tidy and stuff in the face of all this poo carnage. And he just... It never occurs to him to just, like, not let poo in his house. He's trying to make the best out of it that he can. And that's really funny, and it makes that character really likeable. And Rabbit's not really in the second segment, but he does play a big role in the third one. And by the time we get the the third short, Rabbit's just a dick. Rabbit becomes... The antagonist of the Winnie the Pooh universe, and this is something that carries on to the TV shows and carries on to the, the spin-off movies, is that Rabbit is often the guy who's bullying the rest of the gang and who is very like conservative and wants everybody to do things the way that he thinks they should be done. And that element of his personality is still there in the first one, but he's not as dogmatic about it he's not trying to force his ideas onto other people he's very accommodating and that makes him funny and likable and And we'll lose that with rabbit as he goes on i think that's a shame
0: yeah that does feel like a shame and i, I think something that you're hitting on there that's great about all of this is how winnie the pooh is a, a fun character to be around but also the way everybody else reacts to winnie the pooh is also kind of entertaining to watch especially even in this first story i love when pooh gets his butt stuck in the tree Where all the bees are, and that one bee just like absolutely creases it, like is absolutely losing it, (laughs) howling with laughter, like rolling around, clutching himself with his many little bee arms, just losing it. (laughs) If there's any candidate for Disney vs. Legend, it would
1: be that bee, that one bee. I think another thing about what that I love about Pooh and how people react to him that comes through in this first one is that like. Everyone loves Pooh, no matter what he does and people like give Pooh a lot of praise for doing the bare minimum And even when it looks like he's in a position that he might be able to make it out of, of rabbits house the throw him a whole parade <laughs> <laughs> they're like marching towards us oh poo's gonna get out we're having a parade i've already established i can't remember how that song goes but <laughs> it's like it's, let's throw this celebration for this guy who all he's actually managed to do is nothing for a few days and he's almost out of the terrible situation that he got himself in in the first place but we'll love him he's winning the poo
0: yeah i would love a parade in that situation please celebrate me for the absolute bare minimum Okay, let's talk about the second story for a bit. So, Sam, what is the official name of story number two?
1: This is "Winnie the Pooh and the Blustery Day."
0: Right? Yeah, because we get that song about it being a rather blustery day. That I have to say, I can't remember the tune of that
1: one. Oh, I've got it's um, and I think it's gonna be a rather blustery day, something like that. I've remembered the (laughs) tune. I don't have the lyrics. Come on, that's quite jazzy. A pretty blustery day.
0: I still think bop rather than banger. I don't think you can call Uh, any of these bangers. Fair
1: enough, fair enough. Bit of a bop, though.
0: But this is like the ideal seasonal viewing. This was like the most autumnal thing that I've seen in a long time on a very autumnal day here. Pooh is out in his blue scarf to go with the red crop top. The words are blowing off the page. There are kind of big leaves being blown around all over the place. I loved that whole kind of autumnal feeling to this. And uh, I mean, the story is kind of all over the place, right? Because so so Piglet, well, Piglet is in this story who hasn't really appeared in anything until this point. So this is Piglet coming into the Pooniverse, as we kind of keep reluctantly calling it. Piglet gets blown up into the air, flying around like a kite. I thought that was a pretty good jape. They're in Owl's house, and Owl's house is being blown back and forth by the wind. Again, I loved that kind of Pooh trying to get the honey off the table as the house is blowing back and forth and it's just going out of reach and everything shifting around in the house as it's being blown around. So that is kind of what a lot of this story is. And then the second half of this story is Pooh having an absolute freakout And having like an astral projection dream (laughs) when he learns about Heffalumps and Woozles who might want to take his honey away. It's like, what a weird story. This
1: is how it gets from one thing to the next. So all of these shorts, you know, we say, oh, how many adventures? Three adventures. But not really, because you can break them down a little bit further than that. Each short was based on more than one chapter from the Milne book, which is very episodic anyway. Or moon books, I should say, because there's two. There's Winnie the Pooh and the House at Pooh Corner, and it's taken from both. So there's like three separate, totally separate chapters of those books that come together to make Winnie the Pooh and the Blustery Day.
0: And it's not just Piglet who is brought into this story for the first time in this segment. We also finally get some Tigger action. Tigger bounces into this tale with his extremely, well, bouncy tail. And his very catchy song, The Wonderful Thing About Tigger's, Which, that, I mean, has a huge life beyond this film. That feels like it's really out there. That and the Winnie the Pooh song are the the real
1: legacy, I think, of Disney's Winnie the Pooh. Really? The, The Tigger song? Do you hear that often? The wonderful yeah. thing about Tigger is, I mean, great song, banger, yeah. I would argue.
0: I don't know, I just feel like that's really, really catchy, and uh, that's that's something I've always associated with my sort of exposure to Winnie the Pooh.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I love Tigger, like I say, Tigger when I was a kid was my favourite character, um, and I, as a result, I love this song, and I think, oh my god, he makes such an entrance into this, bursting through and, and bouncing and pouncing on Pooh, and it's just, this energetic powerhouse the movie up until this point has felt very gentle and chilled out and Tigger is the furthest from chilled out you can possibly be and it makes a lot of sense that he made such a big impression that they named the third shot after him the third one is called "Wingy the Pooh and Tigger 2 and focuses mostly on Tigger
0: yeah he is the breakout star and he really just sends this story off on an axis because he is the one who introduces this idea of heffalops and woozles he bounces in he tries some of the honey and then doesn't like it oh i hate when somebody's like oh can i have try some of this that you've bought and then they have a bit of your food and then they're like oh that's not very nice And it's like well i would have enjoyed that bite But he warns Pooh of the Heffalumps and Woozles coming to take his honey, at which point Pooh, like, tools up. (laughs) He gets a gun.
1: (laughs) He gets his little rifle.
0: (laughs) Well, again, Terminator vibes. (laughs) Terminator. This is it. But then, everything goes absolutely off its head, because Pooh falls asleep, his soul flies out of his body (laughs) as he falls asleep, and he dreams of Heffalumps and Woozles, and we've talked about Wolfgang Reithemann in previous Disney films kind of paying homage to the proper Walt era stuff. Now, obviously, I understand that this was actually made, what, in the 60s as a short rather than as part of this film, but this felt like Pink Elephants Part 2. It literally has the elephant connection in that the heffalump is sort of Tigger's way of saying elephant and there are actual pink elephants in this sequence so surely this must have been an intentional homage to that iconic Dumbo sequence.
1: Yeah absolutely and there are some similar beats there's like a creepy kind of ballroom dancing scene which is reminiscent of, of the ballet scene in Dumbo there's a giant eye which made me think there's a lot of giant eyes in in surrealist sequences and animation there's the big eye in pink elephants on parade which really stands out there's um experimental film by norman mclaren which came out before dumbo called love on the wing and that has a great big eye and uh, there's another one by john hallis called the magic canvas and that's got a great big eye i'm trying to figure out what it is all of these like surreal psychedelic animated sequences seem to they all have a big creepy eye in them i guess it's just because big eyes are creepy i mean i thought that this thing in general was creepier than pink elephants on parades there's something about it that was a lot more genuinely unsettling i think it's because they're all rather than being purely plasmatic and abstract like those um very fluid pink elephants that are made from bubbles that dumbo has blown they are stuffed animals like Pooh, and they have this kind of like creepy toy come to life chucky annabelle vibe to them as they dance around <laughs>
0: yeah i think as well it's so unexpected in this film i had no idea this segment existed i did not know this was a thing everybody knows pink elephants on parade is a thing they expect that when they watch dumbo now because it's become part of the wider legacy of that film whereas i was like what the hell is happening in the middle of the winnie the pooh movie it came out of nowhere and, the, and i think it's the the visuals are really creepy But the music goes really off key as well, it's like everything starts to like crank up in this weird way, and everything's being thrown off balance. And it does feel really unsettling seeing all of these kind of shape-shifting elephants. Uh, I mean, Sam, I want to know what your favourite elephants are in this, because you had very strong feelings about that in Dumbo, where there is like an elephant bee, there's an elephant that kind of inflates itself by sucking up pure honey. What are your favourite elephants here?
1: okay i like the creepy ballroom dancing ones i just thought that was terrifying but i think my favorite visual from this isn't one of the heffalumps or the woozles it's the terrifying laughing honey pot there's this like honey (laughs) pot that's walking along on like spindly freak legs and it opens up and just starts (laughs) that is rough man that is haunting (laughs) I think the thing about Heffalumps and Woozles, let's not forget Woozles. It feels like people always forget Woozles.
0: This feels like Heffalumps with a side serving of Woozles. (laughs) Low Woozle presence.
1: But a thing that makes Heffalumps and Woozles, I think, truly scary is what they represent, because Pooh thinks that they're coming for his honey. That's what Pooh's worried about, that they're going to come and get his honey. And that's the vision of Heffalumps and Woozles that he conjures. But as the lyrics tell us, if Honey's what you covet, you'll find that they love it because they guzzle up the things you prize. They're coming for whatever you love, yeah? If you love honey, honey. If you love your human family, watch out. Heffalumps are coming. <laughs> They're coming for my DVDs. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm so sorry to Lid, your girlfriend, because <laughs> the first thing that you were like, oh, they're coming for what I love, is your collection of Disney DVDs.
1: Uh, Lid can handle herself. Um, <laughs> she can. <laughs> the DVDs, I'll be camped out with my little pop rifle <laughs> in my DVD room, trying to protect them from the Heffalums. They'll be after your Legos, Ben.
0: No, not my Lego, or my fiancé, but not my <laughs> Lego, please, No. Oh god, the sequence was absolutely nuts. It came from nowhere for me. It really caught me off guard. I had no idea what was happening. I think my favourite thing was my mum's comment at the end of that moment. <laughs> at the end of that sequence. She went, I don't know what it adds to the story, really. She <laughs> <It> was just <laughs> That was her one line assessment of uh what are we gonna call this? Pink heffalumps on parade? Feet woozles. <laughs> Feet the woozles. But yeah, it is a really unexpected thing in this movie. And I mean, the animation is really impressive. I have a theory about what the eyes could be, Sam. In this kind of psychedelic era, is it that these things are being made for us to
1: watch, but then we also get a sense that we are being watched back? Oh, the Heffalumps are watching you, and they're going to come for what you covet. Maybe.
0: I mean, it's not just... That this sequence is really intense. Is that then it's followed up by a biblical flood that like Piglet and Pooh are then like floating on? Yeah, they needed Noah's Ark or something to get them out of there. It gets just the scale of this story is wild.
1: Yeah, imagine Pooh wakes up like, Oh my god, thank god those heffalumps and woozles were just a dream. Now to leave my house into the normal everyday world. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God! No, it's so intense. The rain, rain, rain's coming down, down, down. Piglet's in trouble as well. He's written that most adorable "I'm about to die" letter you could write. Help! Help! Papa, pu- Papa, pu- 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 Piglet. Brackets. Me. me.
0: Oh. <laughs> I mean, it's super cute, but also terrible. Nobody can help in that situation. What are you doing, man? But it all somehow comes together. It's all just kind of wraps up, basically. That the flood goes away. Owl just moves into Piglet's house and Piglet's like, well that's fine because I'm going to live with Pooh. And then it sort of dovetails into this lovely idea of having a two-hero party. You have a (laughs) hero party for somebody in your local community who you just think is a hero. But then if there's another hero, you just make it a two-hero party.
1: I'd love a hero party. I need to find something heroic to do. But I think we need to get into a bit more detail about what Piglet is a hero for because I'm not sure what he actually did was heroic. So what what happened was, Owl house was destroyed and Owl's like oh, i need a new house everyone needs to find owl a new house eeyore comes in one day and says i found a new house for owl and they go and see this house and owl's like oh my god this is a perfect house and everyone's like that's uh, that's piglet's house and Pooh's like piglet you need to tell him that it's your house and piglet's like oh no no that's a really nice house there owl you should have that house what a great house and it's like Piglet just gave Owl his house out of social <laughs> awkwardness. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> he's not a hero. I've been in that situation myself. It's like, oh no, no, I wasn't eating that. You can have that. It's, it's fine, it's fine. It's like He just didn't want to be the one to have to say, to have to like ruin Owl's excitement to having a new house by saying, that's my house.
0: Piglet shouldn't have had to do that. But then the way to react to it isn't just to be like, well, Piglet's a hero because he just didn't want to say anything. It's a weird way of dealing with things. That feels very British, passive aggressive there.
1: Someone needs to step in. Christopher Robin needs to step in. He's supposed to be the voice of reason. But now Piglet's going to live with Pooh, I guess. Fine.
0: That's the end. <laughs> <laughs> so the final story is Tigger's story Winnie the Pooh and Tigger 2. He was the breakout of the second tale. He comes back. And now he's got a catchphrase TTFN, ta ta for now. Is that where that came from as well? I feel like that's a thing that people on the internet say.
1: I mean, that's always a thing that my grandparents have said, so maybe it predates Tigger, I'm not sure. He also has another catchphrase. He says, great, at one point. Yeah, like precursor to Tony the Tiger. Uh, after Tony the Tiger, I think I think this was a little nod, a little reference there, which is quite rare from Disney.
0: Sam, your favourite thing in animated movies, intertextuality. Exactly. up right there. Yes, my first from Disney-versity is on its way. But this is a tale, as you said, of bullying, I guess? Because Rabbit thinks Tigger is too bouncy. He holds a meeting about it in which Pooh immediately falls asleep. What a massive vibe. Piglet thinks that they should take the bounce out of Tigger. So Piglet is complicit in this. How can you dare to want to take the bounce out of Tigger? It's so
1: cruel. Yeah, this is where Rabbit really breaks bad, like I was saying earlier. He's just a dick it's like you're not behaving how i want you to behave so i'm going to go to extreme lengths by the standards of the wing the pooh stories to rob you of what makes you you and we're going to they make tigger think that they're hanging out with him for fun they make tigger think we're just going on a fun expedition in the woods and then they're going to lose tigger so that he gets lost for who knows how long in the woods and comes back too sad to bounce What's that about? That's not what friends do. Rabbit's a bad person in this segment of the film.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it is so mean. And uh, I think we really like Tigger because we can see that his hyperactivity is maybe a bit much. But the way that he's animated, the way that he moves, the energy that he brings, and also the energy in that vocal performance is So
1: endearing that as an audience, you don't want to see the bounce taken out of Tigger. No, we need to talk a little bit about the vocal performance, actually, because this guy, Paul Winchell, who voices Tigger, he's a special guy. So he, in addition to being Tigger, he was Dick Dastardly in the Wacky Racers. He was Gargamel in the Smurfs. I don't know if you recognised any of that in there. In addition to that, he was a well-known ventriloquist, which is pretty standard for Disney voice actors. Yeah, exactly. They've always had that relationship with the CD world of ventriloquism. (laughs) And um, Paul Winchell, he also invented the artificial heart.
0: What? As in, like, you need a heart transplant sort of thing or you need some heart surgery to get the old blood pumping? What, he did that? Just on the side?
1: He invented the artificial heart on the side. It was a side project. He's Tigger by day scientist by night and you know obviously there's been lots of questions about uh, who did the first heart different claims to invent the first artificial heart i believe it's generally accepted that it was tigger he held 30 patents he did a lot of inventing and um, he invented a flameless cigarette lighter a portable blood plasma defroster an invisible garter belt. I'm not even totally sure what that means, but it sounds a bit saucy. It sounds like
0: something that Winnie the Pooh could have used.
1: <laughs> a retractable fountain pen and battery-heated gloves. And you don't see many of them around these days. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds quite dangerous.
0: Just stick my gloves on, just attach the battery pack somewhere.
1: <laughs> wow, what a
0: guy. That is an insane legacy for this dude to have. Imagine if you had heart surgery and the first thing you hear upon waking up is the voice Woo-hoo-hoo! of Tigger. <laughs>
1: Oh, I fucked you! fucked you right up! <laughs> I don't know if that was good.
0: <laughs> no, I thought that was great. You did well, man. Well, I had no idea that any of that would have been connected to this to this guy.
1: So he's truly a disney University legend, Paul Winchell.
0: Oh, man, what a dude. And, I mean, there's not, I guess, a huge amount to talk about on this story, other than that Rabbit somehow thinks he's, like, the bounce police or something. But I really liked, uh, In we were talking about this taking place within the book, that moment where Tigger says, "I I almost bounce clean out of the book," some bouncing hurt like, and we see him bouncing beyond the page of the book. I thought that was a really beautiful touch. I loved that. But Sam, I think we need to get to the moment that you've been dreading. Sam, it's almost time to finish talking about the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh. Okay, and it's time to put away this story for the moment. And I think the way that we have to do that is just by saying our goodbye to the moment where Christopher Robin says goodbye to Winnie the Pooh. Take some deep breaths. You've got this. I'm here for you. We're all here for you. Let's talk about the enchanted place where we say goodbye.
1: (laughs) Even just those words.
0: Enchanted place is so evocative. Oh, God.
1: setting me off it's like there's an enchanted place in all of us right there's an enchanted place in all of our lives everyone has that enchanted place where you had some great times with some great people and maybe you don't see those people so much anymore but you still remember that enchanted place you know what i'm saying ben what, what do you mean i see you on zoom every two weeks to do this podcast
0: <laughs> but it touches me that you think about it that way
1: <laughs> but
0: I, I know what you mean it has that like toy story 3 essence it has...
1: exactly
0: it's that, like, Toy Story 3 is Winnie the Pooh, the end of Winnie the Pooh for a whole new generation of Andy handing over the toys to Bonnie. For me, it's not the furnace that gets me in Toy Story no. 3. It's at the end when he's on Bonnie's lawn, handing across Woody and Buzz and saying, oh, these are going to be the best of friends to you. They were the best of friends to me, but they, my time with them is done. This is for you now. And, oh, God, now are oh, you? Gonna, I'm going to set myself off. Okay, so... <laughs> Yeah, it is. It does have a lovely universal appeal. There's a universality to the message of that, of kind of putting those things away and to saying goodbye to certain places or certain friends or certain things that were really formative for you. For me? (laughs) Or formative for anybody in your life.
1: Yeah, it feels like... I like most people have been through a lot of situations like that where you move from like school to college and then college to uni and then uni into your career and maybe to different places for that reason. Every, everyone has those moments and it's not like any of those in real life have been particularly traumatic for me, but every time I return to this that's what it evokes and you think of you know people who you don't see as much as you used to and places you don't go to as much as you used to and it is it, it gets to me man and you know what it is in the book is it's about that end of, and in, in the film even really in Winnie the Pooh it's, it's about that end of childhood innocence and that's a bit what it's like in Toy Story 3 as well we're not just saying goodbye to friends we're saying goodbye specifically to the things and places and people that we associate with an earlier time in our life and we've now got to move on we've got to progress into adulthood from childhood or whatever moving from innocence to experience in that sort of William Blakey and sense and it hits me i feel like one of the things that i think sets me off particularly with winnie the pooh is that i feel like you're supposed to relate to christopher robin it's supposed to be like i'm christopher robin i'm moving on to the next stage of my life and i'm leaving these people behind but and i'm not trying to turn this into therapy for me because i went straight from university into more university to do a phd for like three four years it felt like i was kind of in the hundred acre Wood, while everyone else was moving out into the real world going to school like christopher robin mm. so i always felt like winging the poo it's like everyone's kind of gone and spreading out and i'm the guy whose life's kind of i'm still in the enchanted place waiting for those guys to to come back to see me and i think that's why it hits me particularly hard and and i'm fine now <laughs> fine Oh god, Sam. but it's yeah there's something about that i get those poo vibes i relate a lot to poo Oh, my God, I did it (laughs) again. Sam, lay back
0: on my sofa. And how does that make you feel? (laughs) But, uh, no, you're right. And I think partly it's because, as well, the story, intentionally or not, you don't feel like you're going off with Christopher Robin. You feel like you're still in the Hundred Acre Wood with Pooh and Christopher Robin's gone. And I think you feel... Like you're more placed in with Pooh and those characters, Mm. because Christopher Robin is a more minor presence here, so it doesn't situate you with that character of like, oh well I'm going with them and we're moving on to exciting new different things, it's like, oh we're in the left behind place
1: So I wonder if the live action framing device was an attempt to do that an attempt to align the audience with Christopher Robin but I agree with what you're saying and I think that's borne out with the rest of the franchise because we have to keep the Pooh stories going in order to make more movies and tell more stories and sell more merchandise. We do stay with Winnie the Pooh and in all the spin-offs and stuff Christopher Robin's like an occasional visitor and what we keep going back to is the gang in The Hundred Acre Wood.
0: One thing that did stand out to me is that we've spoken in a couple of the recent films about the whole reuse of animation thing I guess especially in Robin Hood But there was a moment here in this final kind of concluding chapter of Christopher Robin uh, walking along with Pooh and they're talking about the fact that they're going to be parting soon. And he walks across a big branch on a river and I was like, this rings a bell from Mowgli kind of kicking about in the jungle. Was that a bit of reused footage?
1: Yeah, in in that ending scene, which again, directed by Wally Reiverman, and also probably maybe on a little bit of a time constraint and a budget constraint, considering it's the only totally new thing that's been animated for this movie, they do insert multiple animation sequences from Mowgli wandering about through the jungle. And, you know, we talked a bit about... Is this just a cost cut and measure, or is some of this maybe part of the authorial style of Wolfgang Reithman, and is he trying to say something by harkening back to those earlier disney movies and In this case, I definitely think he is because Mowgli and in some of but not all of the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh, Christopher Robin share a voice actor and we'll we'll talk a bit more about that later because that was quite controversial, but they share the same voice actor. And that is Woolly Reitherman's son, Bruce Ritherman okay, who would have been 22 at the point that this was being made, so for me, this emphasises a connection between these two films that Reitherman has worked on, which are both about little boys moving from childhood to adulthood, with the former being represented by this idyllic, like, pastoral jungle or forest environment, both of whom happen to be friends with big lovely bears. And and they're transitioning from innocence to maturity. And I don't know, it feels like a bit of a shout-out to the Jungle Book, but also a bit of a shout-out from Woolly to his son as he ages himself into adulthood. It's almost like Wolfgang Reitherman is, is wishing Bruce Reitherman good luck as he enters the big wide world in his 20s. And maybe I'm reading too much into that, but I feel like it's not just that the animation's being reused here. There are such distinct similarities between these two scenes that it does feel like more of a deliberate homage than just laziness in this case.
0: So who did the voice of Christopher Robin in this final bit then? Is it Bruce Reitherman
1: again as a 22-something-year-old? How is he doing that kid voice? No, so Bruce Reitherman voices Christopher Robin in the Pooh* and the Honey Tree, and then he's successively replaced by two different voice actors for each film, so there's actually three voices of Christopher Robin in this film, it's different in each of the shorts.
0: That's interesting, I guess you wouldn't really notice, because Christopher Robin doesn't play a huge part in this really. It's so Pooh-centric, you know? Did you cry when you watched this? I didn't actually, and I was worried that I was gonna, because stuff like this does get me. Like, I can't watch When She Loved Me in Toy Story Mm. 2, and like I don't revisit Toy Story 3 because that is too much, and, yeah, I was worried that this was going to set me off. I have to say, I understand that it's all those different kind of things that you're bringing to it as well, and that there is a real emotionality to this. For me, it wasn't quite as emotionally devastating as I thought it might be. There was a sweet poignancy, but I think there's a lightness to that ending rather than it really hitting Mm -hmm. home the kind of... Which maybe is part of what makes it so kind of sweet and innocent as well, that it isn't kind of trying to, like... You're gonna cry now. It's just like this is a sweet ending to the story, and we move on.
1: I mean, I think I maybe had bigged it up a bit for you. You know, I have told you in the past how, how many times I've cried at *Winnie the Pooh*, and watching it again the other day with my kind of more critical hat on, making notes and stuff, and therefore being slightly more detached, it was shorter than I remember it being. That segment. I remember it being a lot more drawn out and I think possibly the reason why I cry, you know, watching this scene and whenever I engage with anything Winnie the Pooh related is because it always takes me back to that book. It takes me back to when I read the book and I remember so well what happens in the book and how long that is that this film version, it's tapping into my memories of that and that's why it's making me cry. And they change it a little bit, in the book the last sentence is, here we go, is... So,
0: you can do this Sam, I believe in you We've oh, all got you So they and went off together loved me <laughs> Everything <laughs> was beautiful
1: Stop Every it. night we spent together
0: Lives within my heart
1: Oh god In the book it goes So they went off together But wherever they go And whatever happens to them on the way In that enchanted place On the top of the forest A little boy and his bear Will always be playing And in the movie, it changes to, a little bear will always be waiting. And in a way, that's worse. Oh, that's sadder. Pooh is like one of those dogs. He's like, what's that dog called? In Scotland, Greyfriars Bobby, that's his name. And his master died, and the dog just waited by his grave forever until he died in the graveyard and they built a statue of him. You know that dog?
0: Yeah, Winnie the Pooh waiting for Christopher Robin to come back when you know he's not gonna, he can't come back oh god but okay so we've talked about how emotional that is but let's end on the moment that for me undermined all of that when we go back to the live action framing device we see the bear in the bedroom and they make the poo bear wink he does like a scary wink it instilled terror (laughs) in me that i still feel right now and we go from this really sweet ending to like a live action bear trying to wink weird i'm
1: waiting for you ben (laughs) I'm still waiting.
0: <laughs> Down in the Hundred Acre Wood, or when you close your eyes and you astrally project in the night the heffalumps, the woozles, and a tooled at Winnie the Pooh. He's coming to get you, Christopher. <laughs> As we leave the Hundred Acre Wood behind us then, that brings us to Discarded, the section of the show where we look back at the original stories that the filmmakers were drawing from and dig up all the kind of weird creepy stuff that they decided to leave out. Sam, could it possibly be that there's anything creepy in the sweet simple world of Winnie the Pooh? Surely
1: not. There's not really, unfortunately. Uh, I know that you've said this in the past like oh robin hood there can't be anything creepy about that and then <laughs> obviously there's there's always something kind of wild going on in the source material but not only is there not much weird stuff in milne's wing of the Pooh books nearly all of it has been adapted not for this movie obviously but in the various spin-off movies and shows and stuff they've kind of touched on every single chapter from um milne's book so for example i was reading through it and I was, oh there's this chapter where kanga and Roo move into the forest for the first time and rabbit wants to get rid of them so he convinces Pooh and piglet to kidnap Roo in order to get her to leave and then what? kanga sort of pretends to believe that piglet is rue and she takes him home and gives him a bath <laughs> i thought <laughs> wow that's kind of a weird one i'm not surprised a that crazy story in but they do that in Piglet's big movie.
0: Oh, so that is Piglet's big adventure of the
1: big movie. (laughs) It's not the main plot of the film, but they do incorporate that adventure into it, yes. Yeah, they've pretty much done everything. The one major thing from the books that does get left behind is Rabbit's friends and relations, who are a group of pals that Rabbit has that follow him around everywhere. There's like a squirrel, a hedgehog, some mice, some insects... Um, I've got a list of of fun names here. There's uh, late, early, Henry, Rush, Alexander, Beetle, Small, and smallest
0: of all. Okay, so some of them have very conceptual names, and then you just have Henry in there.
1: <laughs> yeah, but you know, I would have liked to have seen smallest of all in a in a Disney movie, but uh, it wasn't to be. Apparently, simplifying it, we'll get them all out. We'll put the Gopher in. that's all we need.
0: Well, if there's not much for Discarded, let's move on to the reviews section. So, what did critics have to say at the time? Did they go for the fact that this was a package movie of three shorts that had already seen the light of day? Did that anger people? Or did people like having a chance to spend 70-odd minutes in Winnie the Pooh's company?
1: Well, here's the thing, Ben, okay? This is i've never let you down like this before i feel like i always i always try and go the extra mile to get all the information i can about how these things were received when they came out i can't find any evidence that this movie ever existed
0: (laughs) (laughs) right so there's not really anything out there no reviews no but nothing about how it was released
1: there is a lot of info about how the shorts were received when they first came out, especially the first one, Winnie the Pooh and the Honey Tree. So it might not surprise you to learn that it was very badly received in Britain. Mm -hmm. Um, The Daily Mail wrote, it appears that in the very unenchanted forest of film commerce, a gopher is worth more than a piglet. And this was obviously a, a reaction, oh, we've brought the gopher in. As far as they knew, at this point, we've got rid of piglet in favour of the gopher, because he didn't come in until the second film. So they weren't happy about that. The Daily Mail, and this is, you know, some things never change, said that it was an extraordinary attack on one of the last proud remnants of the British Empire.
0: Oh, that is classic Daily Mail
1: language right there. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like they've probably written that exact same sentence about all number of things in the years (laughs) since. One thing that really got people's goat, especially this one guy called Felix Barker, who wrote for the London Evening News, was that Christopher Robin had, in the first film, an American accent, the voice of Bruce Reitherman. And I knew that when I was watching this, and I found it quite hard to tell. I don't know if it's just because I'm so used to that kind of very Disney, like mid-Atlantic, Britishized American accent that you get in movies like Peter Pan, but... I couldn't tell but when you know and you're listening to it he does have a bit of an American accent in that first short that changes and becomes more British in the next two
0: yeah because in that first one I guess it didn't really register with me and like you said it has that mid-Atlantic feel and then when I was kind of listening out for it more towards the end that obviously changed the voice actor and it was a British kid so I was like oh no they did keep Christopher Robin British but yeah I can see why with the first film that would have rubbed people up the wrong way
1: Yeah, so this guy Felix Barker waged a lengthy campaign against the studio and he sent them all these furious telegrams. And eventually, apparently, the UK's only print of the film was recalled to Hollywood so that they could re-dub it and re-release it. And Barker saw this as his personal triumph and wrote in his column, Long live Uncle Walt! Rule Britannia!
0: (laughs) Oh my god, British people are so embarrassing. (laughs) What are we
1: on about? So, E.H. Shepard, the illustrator, didn't love it either. He said it was a complete travesty. And they do butcher his designs for the characters. I think that's one thing we can agree is, is. I don't know, maybe a step down. They, they're they not as charming visually as the original Shepard designs, and they do look very disney I would agree there. But it was well-received in America. So, for example, the New York Times wrote that, the disney technicians responsible for this beguiling miniature have had the wisdom to dip right into the miln pages just as Pooh pours after honey so they can they, they were praising the fact that they were using this book as a way into the stories um and they said we can only hope this means a whole series to come and it did and The next two shorts were even more warmly received. Uh, Wingy the Pooh and the Blustery Deer won an Oscar for Best Animated Short. And Wingy the Pooh and Tigger 2 was nominated for one as well. Box office wise, obviously it's not really worth talking about how well these shorts did at the box office because they were tied to these films, so if the ugly dash and didn't make millions that isn't necessarily a reflection on on the quality of the short for example
0: or on the quality of the dash and let's be clear. (laughs) no
1: it's a reflection on the public's terrible taste for not wanting to go and see that movie for the title alone but when it comes to this movie the many adventures of winnie the pooh i found it very very difficult to get data on how well it did it released on a double bill as well so it was tied to a film called The Littlest Horse Thieves, so you could only really go and see it in America.
0: (laughs) With The Littlest Horse Thieves? How little are they?
1: What is that? Like child-sized, not like borrowers or anything, not like leprechauns rustling (laughs) horses.
0: The live-action Disney films are a real, like, random word generator, chuck them all together, see what you get.
1: Absolutely, yeah. So, I can only surmise that this was an absolutely tiny release. Like, you can usually get the original box office for these things on wikipedia and it's usually sourced from variety or a magazine like that that would publish yearly box office figures so it's it's fairly reliable i actually went into the variety archive on this i was flicking through every variety issue from 1977 from like so basically from like december 1977 through till like, February 1978, I was going through every variety to try and find their year-end box office list, or even to find the week in which this movie was released to see if they were reported on the box office then. In the year-end list for 1977, it says that The Littlest Horse Thieves made 2.1 million. So, if that was the only way you could see The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh was part of this double bill, we'll have to assume that that collection made 2.1 million, which puts it miles below... Any of the Disney films that we've looked at. It puts it miles below Robin Hood and the Aristocats, which made 9 and 10 million, respectively. I don't want to say it was a bomb, though, because it was obviously a tiny expense. It didn't cost them much to produce. There was like five minutes at most of original animation in here, some of which was recycled. So I don't know, though. It feels like even though these things, these shorts, had been very successful and well regarded, we saw the massive franchise that it led to down the line this movie not many people seem to have actually seen it in cinemas in its original form
0: just feels like a little bonus doesn't it the fact that they released it as a b-side basically or as a as a secondary feature cobbled it together from three other shorts that already existed, a couple of extra minutes of animation, but really was a stepping stone to everything that came after, which we're about to get to. But very briefly, let's just give our thoughts and star ratings. Sam, is this a five-star classic for you? Does it have a five-star place in your heart for all the tears that you shed over this film?
1: It's up there. I think I'm putting it at four, maybe four and a half. I think it's really, really strong. It's my favourite Dark Age film we've covered so far of the, what, three? But I wouldn't be surprised if it came out of the top of my Dark Age ranking when we get to the end of this phase. It's just so charming and low stakes and it is funny and it does have that emotional quality to it as well. It's a bit like if one of those characters that we love, like Bill the Lizard or Roquefort the (laughs) Mouse, was a movie, you know? Just kind of ambling through the woods, not bothering anybody, having a pleasant time.
0: I know prequels are dodgy territory, but how did Bill the Lizard get his ladder?
1: That's a story. Yeah, maybe. I mean, Disney Plus, they're making all sorts of stuff now. We'll see what happens.
0: (laughs) I think for me, I'm going to go for a three and a half, right? Because I thought there were some really charming things in this. I loved the storybook presentation and running around the pages of the book was lovely. It's a sweet little film. It skews very young, I think. Among everything that we've seen so far, this is probably the sort of, not in a bad way, but like the kiddiest thing we've seen in that I had a sweet time watching it, but I don't think I'd have much reason to return. But if I had a small child or I knew a small child who needed amusing for 70 minutes, this is actually a really kind of sweet, simple, kind of low-key thing that I think would probably still stand up today. So not necessarily for me, but I thought it was pretty good overall. I'm going to go three and a half. Anyway, we've alluded to this enough, there is so much Winnie the Pooh stuff out there that we can tackle for the section of the show we call Lasting Legacy, Because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie. And in the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies and more, there is a whole universe out there for each character. Now there is so much Winnie the Pooh stuff that we're kind of going to split this Lasting Legacy up because, as we said earlier on in the episode, down the line we will come back to Winnie the Pooh in the 2011 film. So Sam, where do you want to start with this one and what are we going to cover in this first half of Lasting Legacy?
1: so i figured today we can do movies and parks and then next time we'll do tv shows video games and uh, miscellaneous although one thing i did want to start with or two things rather that are not part of the legacy of Winnie the Pooh, because i looked this up uh, it did not give us pin the tail on the donkey that came right. from the year that goes back to like the 1890s and it did not give us ttfn to tar for now this was popularized during world war ii by the radio comedy program it's that man again
0: oh that's a terrible name for a comedy show
1: (laughs) i mean we're laughing
0: but i feel like at
1: rather than with it's that man again and then when the man goes he says ttfn but yeah this is in general one of disney's most merchandised franchises so in 2003 Pooh was estimated to be worth up to six billion a year
0: oh my god that's a lot of honey
1: very expensive Pooh. in 2013 he was the third most valuable franchise in the world after disney princesses and star wars so obviously both of those being disney as well Pooh is extremely valuable you know probably more popular than mickey mouse or has definitely eclipsed mickey mouse at various points in his history in terms of how much stuff there is about this guy and that is reflected in the enormous number of movies and other sorts of spin-offs that we've seen so for example, um, there was a fourth Winnie the Pooh short after this film was kind of wrapped. They return to the idea of featurettes. There was one called Wingy the Pooh and a Day for Eeyore. And this was one of the first Disney productions to be animated entirely by an outside studio called Rick Reinert Productions. And it's not very good. It's got a different <laughs> voice for Pooh. Holloway's kind of a bit too old to do it at this point. They get the guy who did Owl, Hal Smith, is promoted to Pooh for Wingy the Pooh and a Day for Eeyore. It's, it's not great there have been though multiple sequel movies and you know a lot of the ones we've looked at so far being to video sequels there have been a lot of theatrical winnie the pooh movies so we've had the tigger movie in 2000 piglet's big movie and pooh's heffalump movie have all gone to cinemas and that's before we even get to the official canon winnie the pooh movie that we're going to look at quite far down the line
0: so those three films uh, they're disney animations but they're not walt disney animation studios what what do they categorize as
1: and they're made by disney toon studios who work on the tv shows and, and films from the tv shows and the other director video sequels and they made the cgi tinkerbell movies uh, they don't exist anymore but when they did exist part of their contribution was making these poo spin-offs I saw the Tigger movie in cinemas when it came out, um, and I can't remember much about it. The one thing that I took away from it was it had a short at the front of the film, which was, it came up with its own BBFC certificate and everything, and it said, Manborn Number 5 Disney Mix. And I remember oh. seeing this in the cinema in 2000 when I was a kid thinking, you know, when the BBFC certificate comes up, that means the movie's about to start. So when Lou Baker comes on and, and he starts <laughs> singing Mambo Number no. 5, I'm like, Mom, did we go to the wrong movie? Where's my friend Tigger? And this is just Lou Baker singing Mambo Number no. 5, but he changed it to be about all the Disney characters. So it goes, a little bit of Minnie in my life. <laughs> <laughs> no wait 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 does wait does this exist on disney plus <laughs> it's on youtube <laughs> a little bit of minnie in my life a little bit of mickey by her side so you know she's still with mickey Lou Bigger's not muscling in too much. A little bit of Donald is all I need. A little bit of Daisy is what I see. It goes on like that. It's very easily accessible on YouTube and we'd recommend that you do so. Huey Dewey Louie can't go wrong. A little bit of Goofy everyone. A little bit of him makes life so fun. (laughs) Oh god. (laughs) Yeah, it was very cringe. And this is the second remix of Mambo number 5 that we've covered on this show because it was in the Jungle Book video game as well. So yeah, there's the Tigger movie, Piglet's Big movie, Pooh's Heffalump movie. These all basically follow the same storyline where one of the other characters, one of the minor characters, is bullied by rabbit.
0: (laughs) Oh, that bastard.
1: Yeah. So in the Tigger movie, Tigger's feeling neglected and lonely, so he runs off to search for more Tiggers. His friends go to find him and they almost perish in an avalanche.
0: Wait, so his whole thing is that the wonderful thing about Tiggers is he's the only one. So is there
1: more than one? Well, no, there's not. Oh, okay. So he is the only one. Yeah, he is. It turns out he's the only one. The other guys dress up as Tiggers to try and pretend that there's more Tiggers and he's not happy about this. So he runs away and then they all almost die. In Piglet's big movie, Piglet's feeling neglected and lonely because he's so small. So he runs away and his friends go to find him and they almost perish perish in a waterfall and in the heffalump movie Rue is feeling neglected and lonely so he wanders away makes friend with a heffalump his friends try to kill the heffalump because they're racist towards heffalumps and then he almost perishes under a big pile of logs so there's very much the thing to this someone gets bullied by rabbits, they feel bad about it they run away they almost die they get saved, and then everyone's very sorry about what they did.
0: <laughs> yeah, you got to have some kind of mortal peril in there for everyone to see the error of their
1: ways. It feels like, like, why didn't they do the rabbit movie to round this series out and see him get a bit of a taste of his own medicine?
0: Yeah, everyone bullies the rabbit out of Hundred Acre Wood, and that's it. Everyone else lives happily.
1: And then, of course, we get to the live-action movie from a couple of years ago, Christopher Robin starring Ewan McGregor as grown-up Christopher Robin.
0: Sam i think you've told me before that when you saw this christopher robin movie in the cinema with our friend emma lang that you both spent the entire time solidly weeping and scaring <laughs> all the young people who had gone to see christopher robin because these two 20-somethings were sobbing for the whole movie
1: yes yeah, so it opens with the ending of Winnie the pooh it opens with Pooh saying goodbye to christopher robin or vice versa and already i'm crying and i don't know oh. if i need to ask her i don't know if emma has the same kind of deep emotional connection to it as i do or if i just set her off But <laughs> <laughs> for one reason or another we cried for pretty much the entirety of the movie christopher robin <laughs> and at the end we were still crying the lights come up and a little girl sitting next to us wearing like a wing the Pooh ear headband oh. said to our mom mom what's wrong with those people? <laughs> You'd be like, life, it comes to us all, small girl. <laughs> Truly, I lost all of the moisture in my body. And this, this movie's got a little bit of a bad rap. It didn't get a great critical reception. Friend of the show, Helen O'Hara, gave it two stars for Empire Magazine. Ooh. But I haven't gone back to watch it. I watched like the first scene again for this podcast and immediately regretted it. <laughs> I had a time with it i can't really say i enjoyed myself but it did something to me and i feel for that reason i've got to say it was a good movie right it had the intended emotional effect i've forgotten most of what happened
0: you say the intended emotional effect i don't think they shot that film thinking we're gonna make it 20 somethings weep in their seats for an hour and a half
1: so it's all about christopher robin He's like old and jaded, and he's forgotten about Pooh and friends. And then he needs to rekindle his innocence because his family hate him or whatever. So he goes back to the Hundred Acre Woods, and it's all like dark and foggy and gnarly, and it's like a bad place now. And Pooh's alone. All of the other characters have disappeared because Christopher Robin's forgotten about them. And Oof. Pooh's like walking around, going like, "Where is everybody, Rabbit, Tigger?" And it's it's very bleak. That's upsetting, man. Yeah, and I, I, the designs of the characters are very upsetting as well because they look kind of faded and threadbare. Like they've made them look like toys, but old, forgotten toys, and it's it's really sad. And then the end credits, there's a scene where Richard Sherman, the surviving Sherman brother, is playing the piano on the beach, and that made me cry because it's a it's an old Disney man, and we've already established that that makes me cry. So yeah, Christopher Robin, <laughs> And I. I might be one of two people in the world who've had that response but
0: (laughs) oh god this is an absolute emotional roller coaster of a a film oh I I mean it's a sweet idea I think bringing back Christopher Robin as an adult and rediscovering the toys and rediscovering the magic I haven't seen this film but it sounds like it is quite sad where you go oh yep it was better in the olden days the hundred acre wood is not the place it used to be and oh the old Sherman brother is alone on the beach playing the piano i know oh god
1: and it's it's small you know and it's, it's low stakes as well and it doesn't have the scope of like your live action beauty and the beasts or lion kings or whatever but i preferred it to all of them it's definitely a top flight disney live action remake thing for me
0: in fact i'm thinking about this because i've covered the trailer of this film when I first joined Empire. And I remember telling you about it, that I'd seen the trailer for it. And did even the trailer make you cry when Christopher Robin is sitting on the bench and then the voice of Jim Cummings as Winnie the Pooh goes, Christopher Robin? I, I feel like you texted me like, oh, I'm already crying.
1: The trailer made me upset because of how that's when you first see that threadbare version of Pooh. And it was like, oh my God, what have they done to him? In a kind of like... A bit like when you first see the live-action Lion King characters, like, this is this is weird, he shouldn't look real, he should look like cuddly and round and bright yellow. So it was a bit of that mixed with a bit of upset, but when I watched the movie, it was just upset. And you can see why they've made that creative choice, because it makes the whole thing sadder. Oh, especially Tigger. Like, faded-out threadbare Tigger. Oh, no one wants to see that.
0: No, we've already seen what happens when Tigger loses his bounce, no one needs that again. It doesn't end with the Winnie the Pooh bear, like, creepily winking at the camera, does it?
1: (laughs) It doesn't. It ends with a nice big picnic and everybody's friends again.
0: Oh god, that's so pure. Okay, so it feels like that's the movie-verse pretty much done, would you say? Because we're going to obviously do a proper episode on the 2011 film, so we will come back to that down the line. But what's the other bit of the lasting legacy we're going to cover today?
1: Let's talk a bit about theme parks. Pooh has a presence in most of the Disney parks whether it's a walk-around character or a ride. His original walk-around character is excellent, by the way, because for some reason they decided that Winnie the Pooh had to be, like, way shorter than a human. Even though you've got, like, you know, Mickey Mouse is, like, human-sized, but they wanted Winnie the Pooh to be, like, I guess, child-sized. So the original Winnie the Pooh is constantly balancing a big honeypot on his head. And <laughs> <laughs> so... That's where the upper body of the <laughs> actor goes. So, like, Wing the Pooh's head would stop at, like, your chest, and then your head is inside this honeypot that is on top of his head. Very strange choice. That is excellent. So there's a bunch of rides. There's the Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh ride, which is a fairly straightforward dark ride found in loads of the Disney parks, which adapts the events of the movie. And, you know, there's one of these for Alice in Wonderland. There's one of these for Pinocchio. There's one of these for Peter Pan. They do this a lot. Shanghai has Pooh's honeypot spin, which is similar to the Mad Tea Party. Sort of you get in the honeypot and you spin around. Tokyo, though, Tokyo Disneyland has the best poo ride. Not that I've been on it. I've watched it on YouTube and can confirm it looks like the best poo ride. And it's called Poo's Honey Hunt. It's the same concept as the original ride. It just takes you through basically the story of this movie, but it's way souped up. So it's got really high-tech animatronics and animation and this innovative trackless ride system so you're inside a giant honey pot but it feels like you're spinning out of control you're not actually on a track it's just programmed to move through these like big open rooms
0: oh that's pretty cool
1: and there's this amazing psychedelic heffa and woozles sequence where you suddenly come into this room where all the other honey pots and all the other passengers are just spinning around each other and you feel like you're going to crash and there's a bit where you go past a mirror so you can see your own honey pot, and then a big CGI heffalump comes down and takes a drink out of your pot and flies away. Um, it's 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 mega fun from the looks of things. But by far the most interesting sort of parks adjacent Winnie the Pooh lasting legacy thing is it's not a ride it's not something you can go and see or do now in the parks it's a campaign i think is the only way we can really describe it in 1968 to tie in with the release of blustery day so actually you know while these original series of shorts were still coming out disney ran a "Pooh for president campaign Pooh for president what year is this 1968
0: who was president at that time
1: Oh, that's a great question. Who would you have been running against? Was that like pre-Nixon? I think that'll have been Lyndon Johnson going into Richard Nixon. This is when I have to know something that isn't to do with Disney. <laughs> I thought I was good at presidents. I'm going to have to Google it. I'm going to have to Google oh, it.
0: Oh, wasn't there that movie about this by Ron Howard, um, Pooh Nixon? <laughs> about the head-to-head debate. I feel like I saw oh, that.
1: Maybe okay, I'm confusing something right. else. Lyndon Johnson served till 1969, so Richard Nixon was running for election... Pooh was running against Nixon. That is is the (laughs) case, yeah.
0: I can't believe we ended up in a world with Nixon as president and not Winnie the Pooh. Come on, there would have been honey for everyone.
1: So Disney had this huge televised launch event, like live from Disneyland, attended by 10,000 people, and Pooh appeared with so you know the honey pot on his head now it's an uncle sam hat oh Uh, so Pooh turns up dresses uncle sam he releases thousands of red and white and blue balloons
0: sorry can i just say when you said he releases thousands of in my head you were gonna finish that sentence with bees (laughs) he came with a big honey pot he then released (laughs) the bees into the crowd
1: No, he released loads of balloons and he announced his campaign with the slogans Honey in every pot, a good five-cent candy cigar, and Yo-Yo-A-Go-Go. And I feel like they become less and less comprehensible (laughs) (laughs) as you go through.
0: Yo-Yo-A-Go-Go? What does that even mean?
1: They all must be tied into, like, political catchphrases or slogans of the time, right? (laughs) Yo-Yo-A-Go-Go. So, of course, he didn't win. So the campaign was retired until 1972. No, he ran again. He's back post Watergate, I think. I shouldn't even be saying this. I don't know enough about Nixon. (laughs) He's back. He's coming for Nixon again. This year, the slogan is poo for 72. (laughs) Oh, that's a pretty good slogan. To be fair, that's better
0: than yo-yo-a-go-go.
1: And it involved a daily parade down Main Street in Disneyland in California. They also held a big rally in Frontierland in Orlando, and they invited all the press. So we've got reports from journalists who were invited to attend Pooh's rally in Frontierland. They were given a picnic box stuffed with fried chicken. Oh, yeah, that classic British favourite
0: that they would have eaten down in the 100-acre wood, fried Uh, chicken.
1: Ham sandwiches, pickles and
0: such. That's more like it. That's kind of British picnic fare.
1: As well as a handful of wooden nickels, which proved to be legal tender for the day. Good for Pepsis, corn on the cob, and watermelon. So you get your fried chicken for free, but if you want a watermelon or a Pepsi, you've got to exchange a wooden nickel. And I should just say, I love the sound of this. This is all my favourite things. Love watermelon, love chicken, Pepsis, corn on the cob. That's a big doubt for me.
0: Yeah, but surely... That poo nickel, that wooden poo nickel. If you held on to that and didn't spend it on like a Pepsi or a watermelon or something, would be worth so much more now. It was the original
1: Bitcoin. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god! Poo invented crypto. That's the real lasting legacy. (laughs) So on October the first, he was officially selected as the nominee for the children's party. So (laughs) they're really highlighting the process this time, like 1968 they were just messing around, but now we've had an actual like nominations procedure and Pooh is officially selected as the nominee for the Children's Party. So, delegates, children, from every state were sent to attend the Children's Party Conference and the nomination ceremony. (laughs) This is absolutely incredible.
0: Oh, I love it so much. Can I just check? Is this all happening just within Disneyland, or is this happening in wider America?
1: Oh, you just wait. You just wait. So far, it's Disneyland. Okay. So... In his campaign speech, which was voiced live by Sterling Holloway, who was, like, crouched off stage while a guy in a costume was being Winnie the Pooh, he once again promised honey in every pot, but he also said he was going to lick the high price of ice cream cones, that there would be hot fudge sundays every Monday, two tricycles in every garage.
0: (laughs) That's random.
1: Two Saturdays a week. (laughs) And he's going to ban all spankings. (laughs) Well, look what, what Americans that? want to do in the privacy of the wrong <laughs> It's got Pre- nothing to do
0: with Pooh. <laughs> no spankings, otherwise, President Pooh is going to burst through the door.
1: Oh, so Tigger was his press secretary, <laughs> and Eeyore was the campaign manager. Oh, wow. Oh, that's going to be a low energy campaign from Eeyore. Owl was hotly tipped as his pick for running mate. Everyone thought Owl was gonna be nominee for vice president because he appealed to both left and right wingers. Oh god. But eventually, possibly predictably, he went with Piglet. What oh. was Piglet's
0: basis for being vice?
1: Oh, he's vice just president. a good he's a good pal, he's his good friend. I can't man, Pooh's made me cry so many times already <laughs> this week and now I'm crying with laughter. So, Winnie the Pooh, starting from Disney World, toured the country, speaking to audiences <laughs> of thousands. Thousands? In, in various cities, on the way to Washington, D.C., where they were going to hold this big rally.
0: Mr. Pooh goes to Washington. Amazing.
1: So, sources, in quotes, <laughs> say that he did actually get some votes in 1972. Like, he was an actual nominee. People, Some people did vote for Winnie the Pooh in that election, but we don't know how many. Um, but it wasn't zero. Sam, what
0: I'm saying is when Winnie the Pooh steals honey, it is legal.
1: <laughs> so, there would be one more, <laughs> one more campaign in 1978, which he's is- the in- way right again. <laughs> he's back. He, oh my, god, he cannot be stopped. He's back in 1978. Well, now Nixon's out, right? So now he's campaigning against Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter. So he obviously feels like he's got a better chance there. This time, he had a Grammy-nominated campaign song called Pooh for President, and it was performed by a guy called Larry Gross, who I think was like a country singer, and it's extremely catchy, you've got to look it up on YouTube, it goes like this. Pooh for President, vote for Winnie the Pooh. Pooh for President, Pooh is right for you. (laughs) Yeah. So it goes like, "I'm proud to nominate a bear who's been a friend to me, a bear whose name in stories known by millions sea to sea." And so right now, without more words or any more adieu, I give you our next president, the Honorable Winnie the Pooh. And then Pooh comes in. <laughs> he says, "If I'm elected, I make a promise to all you boys and girls: I'll do away with taxes." <laughs> it's all about taxes. <laughs> Sorry, to all you girls and boys, I'll do away with taxes on bicycles, food, and toys. A bit of honey in every pot will be my golden rule, and each of you will have a snack when you come home from school. Poo for president, vote for wing the Poo. (laughs) Oh, incredible.
0: That is astonishing. I mean, he had a manifesto, he had ideas, he knew what he wanted to do with the country. I think he, I can see why he had a
1: shot. Yeah. Anyway, yes, you would think he would have a good chance, except for the fact that he is not a natural-born American citizen, so he would be ineligible. Right. For nothing, if he'd been elected, you would have got your Donald Trump figures, your birthers out there telling us that he was not born in America, he was born in England in the Hundred Acre Wood, and therefore this is a legitimate.
0: Well, I welcome Prime Minister Winnie the Pooh with open arms. I would take him over anyone we've had for a long, long time. And that is it for this week's class. Join us again for next week's seminar as we do some, I don't know, rescuing of some kind? Anyway, our next film is The Rescuers, which I've never seen. This is the point where I haven't seen any of these films now going forward in the Dark Age. Sam, does this mark the official end of the bangover? Are we into full-on Dark Age territory from here on out?
1: I would say so, yeah. I think these first three quote-unquote Dark Age movies, Aristocats, Robin Hood, Winnie the Pooh, they all share a lot of DNA with the late Walt era movies, and Walt had some kind of hand in all of them. With the Rescuers we are properly in, Uncharted Territory, and it is kind of thematically and visually quite dark as well. So it, it, we're entering the Dark Age proper in quite a few ways.
0: There you have it then. Join us in two weeks' time for The Rescuers. And in the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you fancy dropping us a little review or a star rating, wherever you've been listening, it makes a huge difference. We'll bring you a daily dose of honeypots directly to your door. President Pooh will bless your children. It'll be grand. But for now,
1: it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye. No matter what, a little boy and his bear will always be potting. I don't oh. know which of us is the bear and which of us is the boy.
0: Listeners, you decide. <laughs> and it is goodbye from me. Or should I say, TTFN. Ta-ta for now. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class.